Genesis 9, starting at verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. Will he be to his brothers? He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years and then he died. This is the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Goma, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech and Tiras, the sons of Goma, Ashkenaz, Riphath and Togrimah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittim and the Rodanim. From these, the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabbath, Ramah, and Septica, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the first centres of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Agad, and Kalna in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Calah, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Calah. That is the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabitites, Nef, excuse me, <laughs> Nephtahites, Pathrasites, Kazlahites, and from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Gigashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Gemarites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar as far as Gaza and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. 
the sons of Shem. Elam, Asher, Aphex, Aphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Az, Hal, Getha, and Meshech. Aphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad. Shelef, Hazamaveth, Jerah, Hadran, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Imamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sepha in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Here ends the reading. Well done, Nick. Well, have you noticed just how busy everyone seems to be around here? I've lived here for just under a year now, and everyone's very busy. Ask anyone how they're going, and the reply is usually a gritted teeth. I'm busy, 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 busy. I'm busy, mate. I'm too busy to know what to do myself. I'm flat out like a lizard drinking. And it's true even amongst the retirees. Ask them, how are you going? And they reply, Michael, there's not enough hours in the day. I'm rushing here, I'm rushing there, I'm exhausted, there's too much to do. And here I was thinking that retirement meant retirement. Seems like they've been sold a pup. Such is the pace of our human race. And with the pace we all go at, it feels like a race. And we all measure it like a race too, don't we? I heard recently, or earlier this week, that each electronic transaction on the stock market is currently time-stamped to a microsecond so that they can do it quickly and they can manage a whole lot of them, right? Now, that's a millionth of a second. That's a millionth of a second that they're measuring them to. But you know what? It's not fast enough because right now, right this very moment, this is why it was news, they are inventing clock systems that can measure to a nanosecond so they can go faster. That's a billionth of a second so that trading can happen faster than it does right now and so that everyone can get ahead because that's the point, getting ahead, getting ahead of someone else and so that we can measure it. Now, this is not just in finance. It's not just in government. This getting ahead thinking has bled over into our education system here in Australia for our Australian kids. No longer is it good enough for us parents to be able to help our kids keep up with their peers, because that was pretty good for a while there. Now we actually have to empower them to get ahead of their peers. And all of us nod enthusiastically and say, yes, yes, let's make sure we do that, because I want my kid to get ahead. I won't tell you it's in front of yours, but I want them to get ahead anyway. And we all agree with it, because at some point in time back there somewhere, we all decided that the highest good that we could all possibly attain is to get ahead. But hang on a moment. Get ahead of what? And get ahead of who? 
and get ahead of them towards what destination? Where's the finish line? Isn't the grave the destination of us all? Who wants to go faster and get ahead for that? It's crazy talk. But there's no time to stop and ask intelligent questions because we've already agreed that it's good to get ahead. And so faster and faster and faster we go. And this is the life that we're all caught up in. This is the life that we lead. But is this one of those false values of our fallen world that we really should be rejecting and learning to reject? Is this one where we should be going, wait a minute, maybe we should choose Christ instead? But if, if we do make that decision, how? How would we do that? And why should we do that? And what does it even look like not to live like the rest of the world around us? Who's trying to get ahead? Well, clearly we need to slow down for a moment if we even want to stop and think about these things carefully. So I invite you tonight with me to pause from the rat race for just a moment, to get off the highway, pull into one of those, you know, turnout sections and just turn the engine off for a moment and just pause. And let's stop and think about this thing and what it is and what we're doing before we have to pull back out into the traffic again. And let's not be shy about asking our God to help us. Let's pray now and ask him, will you help me? Will you pray with me? Let's do that. Our Father, we thank you that you're our God, that you made this world, and you know what we're like, and you know the speed at which we go. And yet, you also know the damage that we face and the difficulty we're having, and that we need help. Father, would you help us now? Even in this moment when we're feeling anxious because, oh my goodness, how long is it going to talk for? This is going to take forever. That reading was so long. And we're just so worried about time. And we're just stressed about what we're missing out on. Oh, Father, would you show us that what we need to see, what we need to hear is you. And would you help us in this right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in a race. We're in this human race. Where did it start? Where did it start? When we open our Bibles and listen to God, we find it all began right here back with Noah and his three sons. This is where the gun went off and the race began. The competition started here and there, right then. And right there, we're actually told how the race will run. We were told that. What the problems would all be along the way, we're told that as well, and where and how it will end. We were told that also. All this information comes in that brief incident after the first crop of grapes have been processed and Noah finds himself legless after too big a celebration consuming the harvest. There was only one of him, right? So, you know, what do you do when you've got a big harvest? Well, you drink it all. Now, while Noah had no trouble honouring God in that long test of poverty back on the ark, this first test of prosperity... Well, it proves too much for Noah, doesn't it? Too much to handle as he indulges beyond an intelligent measure. And as much as we should take heed lest we fall to making the same mistakes with our prosperity and indulging our prosperity the same kind of way, Noah's drunken nakedness here, it's not actually the major problem. Because did you notice where it happened when Nick read it out for us? It happened in the privacy of his own tent. This isn't a public event. It was private. In there, his shame was covered. No one had to deal with him. 
And there he would have had the privacy and the time to wake up and discover his mistake later and therefore the time to consider what repentance should look like so that his shame would not be repeated or cast upon others. And all that was possible. But it's not to be, for his youngest son Ham doesn't give him that chance, does he? Noah might be drunk and naked in the privacy of his own tent, but Ham doesn't allow Noah to retain his dignity. Ham doesn't give Noah the time of privacy to recover or even discover that his mistake was made. Ham doesn't show his father pity. There's no compassion, no kindness. There's no reverence. There's no respect. As instead, he proclaims from the rooftop Noah's private failure, turning it into a public shame. Ham would have made a really good Australian, wouldn't he? He would have made a good one of us. He sized up a tall poppy and he made sure to cut down Noah even further than he'd brought himself low. No mercy, no dignity was allowed for a silly mistake. Instead, Ham posted on social media to ensure that everyone who was alive, and there wasn't many of them at that time, remember, but so that his father would be embarrassed. And in by doing this, he brought shame upon himself. And Ham's actions make the response of Shem and Japheth to this gossip even more virtuous now, don't they? For the unwarranted respect they displayed. What did they do? They, they walked into the tent backwards with a, with a garment over their shoulders to cover their father's nakedness. They went, they went the extra mile, didn't they, in care. Because of them... Noah was exposed no further to the derision as they carefully covered the shame that Ham had exposed. They showed pity, love, compassion, respect, reverence and grace. They did everything that Ham had the opportunity to do, but which Ham chose against. And it's in the consequences of this incident that follow that we find the differences, the tensions and the difficulties that are still plaguing the human race to this day. Yes, sure, certainly it's true. Poor handling of alcohol created the problem, set the scene, exposed our human error and our propensity for this kind of mistake. And we can and we should learn from that. And yet the issue here wasn't Noah's mistake with the drink. No, no. It's in Ham's shameful publication of the fall of another and what he did with it. And that's what Noah pressed into when he woke up, heard the news. And Noah now speaks and uses his words to underline virtuous choices and to curse poor ones. Verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. 
And the upshot of this will be a competition in their descendants, the descendants of these three brothers, not a competition for their father's love or respect or any of those kind of things, but this is each one of them now against the other. Ham's son Canaan and his descendants fearing slavery and fighting with every breath from now on against becoming the lowest of the slaves. Japheth's descendants now receiving the burden of extending territory in every direction, including over the top of Canaan and making him slave. And all along the way, especially at the finish line, it's going to be the job of Shem's descendants to somehow become responsible for the care and provision of all of them under his tent, whether they are slave or free. And so here it is. In embryonic form, this is our human race as we know it today. Cheers. Welcome to the race. And so, with the shape of the race declared, the finish line now declared, without further ado... The competitors are often racing as 10 verse 1, the camera pans back and the focus shifts now to be the overall account of Shem, Ham and Jatheth, right from here all the way through to 11 verse 26. That's the focus. And first off the mark there with the descendants of Japheth listed in 10 verse 2 to 5, and it's not long before exactly what happens. They go at high speed and extend their territories out as Japheth's grandchildren, the maritime sons of Javan, begin to spread out across the world, even though they will always be welcome in the tents of Shem. And it reads like Japheth's descendants went first, that they were first off out of the block. But we really should notice, and I hope you notice this as Nick was reading it for us, that here in chapter 10, these three accounts are happening simultaneously. They're happening at the same time, not one after the other. It's one of them for each brother. Verses 2 to 5 for Japheth, happening simultaneously with verses 6 to 20 for Ham, simultaneous with verses 21 to 32 for Shem. All of them at the same time. Uh, For example, the Tower of Babel event that happens later on, that occurred in the lifetime of Javan's sons, which corresponds with Ham's grandson Nimrod and Shem's grandson Eber. And all of their parents and grandparents were present there for the building of that, together on the plains of Shinar, before they divided and went off in all those different ways. But more on that next week. For now, we should notice that while their lives are happening simultaneously, they're described here in chapter 10 for us in an orderly way so that we can keep track of the action of each of them. So we've got three competitors on the course at the same time. Shem, Ham and Japheth three sons of Noah. Although that wasn't the listing of their age, was it? Did you notice that? In birth order, it's actually Japheth, Shem and Ham. And from these three men and their wives come all the people, all the tribes, nations and languages that are present in the world today. This is the starting point. Every living person traces their lineage back to these three sons of Noah, just like every thoroughbred racehorse traces its lineage back to one of those three stallions, Briley, Turk, Dali, Arabian, or Godolphin, Arabian. A bit of trivia for you, just in case you didn't know that. Well, we're just like the racehorses. Three men are the source of the common ancestry of all people after the flood. 
Now, noting, of course, that they're all siblings of each other, perhaps it's no wonder then that the nations of the world that we're a part of all still squabble like children, as brothers and sisters of the one family called the human race. We're all affected, all of us are affected, everyone is, by the bloodlines and destinies that precede us. Think of those people who came before you, your parents and grandparents and their physical features and that dicky knee that you've got and whatever else is going on for you. Well, yeah, you can thank them for that and all that baggage of frustration and hatred that they also delivered to you. Thank you very much. Guess what? It's yours now. Yay! And we all, all inherit these things. The bloodlines and destinies that precede us. We're all tarred with their behavioural and social DNA all the way back to this point. And so we all still compete with each other on the same basis, just as they did back then, competing for space, competing for dominance, competing for resources. Our world today is just one big family squabble where, like siblings, we're shouting, you know, he touched me and how dare you? And, and we become proud and entitled and defensive about what we each claim to be ours, because it's ours, isn't it? And like children, we want to draw lines on the floor to delineate our own space from that of our siblings. On the national scene, we call those lines borders and we defend them with machine guns, rockets and armies. Such are the things we compete over as we each seek to get ahead because that's what we're all trying to do. We're just trying to get ahead. However, more than just the natural competitive spirit that's at play that we all experience in this passage, there's also these two blessings that shape everything. Two blessings here that shape everything. These two blessings that dramatically set the thing going but also shape the state of play and give us the finish line. The first blessing was that one that we didn't read out tonight. It's back there in chapter 9, verse 1. We read it last week where God blessed Noah's three sons. All of them received a blessing. As they left the ark to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, Shem, Ham, Japheth, each of them were blessed by God. And that fruitfulness was clearly happening, wasn't it? Judging by the names we read in there in chapter 10, these guys heard God's command and they got busy. Japheth had six sons. Ham had four. Shem had five. And the following generations delivered more again, didn't they? The population of that baby boom back then puts us to shame. I mean, Karen and I had a serious crack at it with four sons. But producing six, that's impressive. Now, by sheer numbers alone, there's no doubt going to be tension soon enough, right? But after Ham's dishonouring of his father, Noah's blessing and curse now enters in to shape things further on the national front. I don't know about you, though. I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with how that played out. <sighs> cursing Ham's younger son, Canaan, rather than cursing Ham himself. Did you notice that? Did that make you feel uncomfortable? Uh, we need to realise that Noah would not curse Ham because God had blessed him. There's your reason. He's not going to seek to curse one whom God has blessed. And so why, why Canaan then? Well, it seems to land on Canaan instead, either because he was named as present with Ham at the time, as he was, or because he's Ham's youngest son, just as 
Ham was Noah's youngest son. We won't know the answer precisely till we get to heaven, but they're the most likely reasons. And on the upside of this, though, because there's an upside, that means that the curse lands just on Canaan and his descendants, and therefore Ham's older three sons all are not affected by Noah's curse at all. They go scot-free. And then did you see how that blessing played out on their descendants that followed? Because it did. Ham's non-cursed sons become some of the most famous ancient peoples on the planet that we still study and look at with great admiration today. Not only is there Nimrod the hunter there, but Cush itself is situated south of Egypt, the birthplace of so much of Africa there in Sudan. It's where the famous Queen of Sheba will later come from. Egypt, likewise, is there as well, along with the Philistines. So too, the ancient regions and peoples of Shinar, Babylon and Nineveh. Go become an ancient historian and do some archaeology. Guess where you'll end up? Those spots. And while these will all interact in all kinds of interesting ways with the descendants of Shem down the track, none of them were under the slavery curse. And we see that as it plays out in the Bible. Not so the sons of Canaan. Hmm. That listing of tribes that we saw there in verses 15 and 16, oh, they're familiar. Keep watching for them, reading for them, seeing them. You'll see a lot of them because they're the same ones that eventually, we're told here, live in the land of Canaan, Sidon and Gaza. These are the same ones that God will later send Shem's descendants, the Israelites, to destroy and enslave because of the depths of perverse sin the Canaanites will eventually fall to under their own influence. Sodom and Gomorrah, you notice, were also mentioned there, weren't they, as descendants of, Can of, of Canaan. Places established by them who will very soon feel the full force of God's destructive wrath for sin even sooner. And you can see that one in Genesis 19. Meanwhile... Japheth? Well, he was commended, wasn't he, for respecting his father. And he was blessed with extending territories and dominance over Canaan's descendants and shelter in the tents of Shem. And that leaves then the full burden, the full burden of the blessing of Noah to fall firmly on the shoulders of Shem. And here in Shem, we find the vindication of the middle child. Anyone a middle child here this evening? Yeah, I know. Middle child. Who wants to be the middle child, right? That's the pit. I was the youngest child. I just got to watch the pain. Whew, far out. Let Shem be your hero and example. Shem's the hero here. Woohoo! Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. Yes, middle children. Isn't this fantastic? May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Hey, someone else is going to provide for him. Isn't this great? Oh, but hang on a moment. <laughs> that wording there doesn't seem like Shem's blessed at all. Um, but actually, he was given something, wasn't he? he? He was given the burden of dominant leadership and the burden of provision for everyone else. Uh, Noah's actual words of blessing aren't upon Shem at all here, are they? They fall instead upon God. Did you notice that? He said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. The blessing's focus is on the Lord with Shem as God's worshipper. 
Noah isn't startled here in any way by Shem's virtue, for Noah knows from whence it came. It was God working through Shem that Noah's shame was covered. It was God working through Shem that means Noah's dignity was restored. And it's by God continuing to work through Shem that the burden of dominant leadership and provision for all his brothers and their descendants will eventually be supplied. And we know this is what happens because of what we read here in this passage about Shem and his descendants that follow across the whole Bible. Because did you notice that in verses 21 through 31, there was little to see in that excerpt about Shem? It said so little about him except to say that, well, they went and inhabited the lands of the eastern hill country. But wait a minute, as, as we read on in the Bible we quickly discover that it's from that place, the eastern hill country in the east, where Abraham will come from. And it's also the place in the east where the Magi will come from, those kings in the New Testament who truly understood how to bless and worship the true king. They come from the east. And they know precisely as Noah did. And it's from the descendants of Abraham that comes the people of Israel through whom God promises to bless all peoples of the earth. And that promise is just passed here in chapter 12, verse 3. Through them, God will work. And in this way, it takes the whole Bible to tell the story of Shem's descendants. It keeps going here after verse 22 into chapter 11 and on and on and on the whole way through the story of the Bible to see God's work through Shem's descendants. And indeed, when we get to the end of the Bible, we find there that it says, hold on, chapter 7 of Revelation, a great multitude which no one can count coming from every nation tribe, people and language, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb wearing white robes and celebrating as they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's the finish line and here's the starting line. How does that happen? How do, how do we go from this starting point with conflict and get all the way to the end and it turns out good? Well, that's the great mystery that's revealed through the entire Bible. Revealed, not a mystery that's concealed, but revealed. And it's revealed through the descendants of Shem because that's what the rest of the Bible tells us about. The descendants of Shem, the Shemites of that day who we know today as the Semites. Because the Hebrew letter for S can be read both sh and s. The Semites, they sound familiar to you? Anti-Semitism? Remember hearing about that? To be anti-Semite. To be anti-the Jews. That's who we're talking about. It's the Jews. Who ever since this moment have been carrying that burden and have been rejected and resisted, despised and afflicted, with the burden of carrying God's honour and blessing and this plan for them to do things that would encompass and provide for all the nations of the earth. From the moment Noah blessed God's work in Shem, it became his never-ending burden to honour his father and cover over his brother's shame. Oh, what a burden it is. 
We know what it was for them in the 20th century and even today. And as we read back in the Bible, we find that it was a burden that broke the Jewish nation as they failed repeatedly in each generation to live up to their calling. And yet God sustained them. He continued to sustain them and preserve them. And why? Because we heard the blessing. It was the Lord, the God of Shem, whose task it was to work through the descendants of Shem to supply for everyone else this great provision to to bring vindication for Shem's descendants, but to supply shelter for the descendants of Japheth and even to bring to freedom the descendants of Canaan who had become slaves. And how does he do it? Oh, we all know. Or at least if you were here last year when we were looking at the book of Galatians in the New Testament in detail and we looked at chapter 3, oh, we know. Because God did it by sending the most famous Semite of all, descendant of Shem, the Lord Jesus. In chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 4, when the, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. No longer slaves, but children of God. Friends, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who honoured his heavenly Father by entering into our tent and wearing our shame. Because that's what he did when he came. He entered into this world And he didn't avert his eyes, did he? Oh, no. He didn't turn his back. Oh, no. But as he saw us kicking in our sin, he didn't laugh, he didn't mock, he didn't scorn when he saw what we had become and how low we had fallen. But instead, with compassion and resolute kindness and grace, he He took our shame and he wore it as a garment on his shoulders and he took it and nailed it to the cross. And that's why Jesus is so important to us. For all the descendants of this family. And that's why it's to Jesus and to Jesus alone that we can go with our shame. He's the one we can take it to because as the years progress and our busyness accelerates and our shame and the shame of others that we know rises before our eyes, Jesus is the only safe place for this. It's Jesus who covers us. It's Jesus who cleanses us. It's Jesus who sets us free. It's Jesus, the descendant of Shem, whom God has worked through to place on our shoulders a brand new white robe over us and to cause us to celebrate without shame because he's dealt with it. He is that one who is the lamb seated upon the throne alongside his heavenly father. It's him. It's him who has empathized with our weaknesses, who's been tempted in every way just like us but was without sin. And so it's through him and him alone that we can approach the throne of God with confidence that we might bring there 
all our shame so that we would receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God supplied. He supplied Jesus. So I invite you to come with me to him now. I'm going to pray. Let's bring before him who can handle our shame and who has provided his son all that we need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, the great descendant of Shem, who has made a tent for all us who have gone so far away from those original lands and have travelled so far. We are now safe in his tent. And for all who were made slaves along the way, have been set free because he has taken our shame upon himself. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son and working through him. And Lord Jesus... You wear our shame as a garment. You dealt with it on the cross. And now you give us access to the Father and mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Oh, we praise you and we thank you. Please help us to keep coming to you and to go nowhere, nowhere else but you. Amen.